Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Sword and Trowel. Uh, Today on the podcast, Graham and I have the privilege of talking to Pastor Mike Stone, who is the pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Blackshear, Georgia, who recently has announced that he is willing to let himself be nominated to become president of the Southern Baptist Convention in the upcoming meeting of the convention in New Orleans. That's coming up in June of this year, 2023. Uh, Some of the things we talked about are what's going on in the SBC. Mike has personally experienced some uh, mistreatment by SBC leaders, and he has sought avenues of trying to uh, correct that and trying to get information uh, made available that hasn't been made available to him. And so we discussed some of those things. Th- this this particular podcast, we could have talked two hours because as we got into the issues, there were just more and more things to say, but we did finally have to just shut it down. But we're going to link in the notes of this episode to a podcast that he released under uh, his own Pastor to Pastor podcast that gives more background and also his announcement video where you can get more details. And we'll be talking about the matters of the SBC as we get closer to the New Orleans Convention. So if you're a Southern Baptist, you'll especially want to listen to this. If you know Southern Baptists or Southern Baptist pastors particularly, please share this episode. It is vitally important for the prospects of what the SBC is and could become uh, if God is pleased to open enough eyes so that we can see the need for a change of direction. Welcome to the Sword and Trial. The Sword and Trial is a podcast of Founders Ministries, and Founders exists for the recovery of the gospel and reformation of local churches. I'm Tom Askell. And I'm Graham Gundon. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Sword and Trial, which is a special one because we have a special guest. Our friend Mike Stone is coming to us from Blackshear, Georgia. So, Pastor Mike, thank you for joining us on the Sword and the Trial. Well, I am indeed here in God's country, and it's a pleasure to be with you. (laughs) Yeah, well, South Georgia is a wonderful, lovely place to be, and I can say that especially at this time of year from South Florida, where it's hot, muggy, sticky, Mm -hmm. stormy. So uh, we'll call you again in January, though, and we'll uh, have that conversation. Mike, thanks for uh, your willingness to come on the show today, and uh, we particularly want to talk to you about the announcement that was made last week about your being willing to be nominated as the uh, president of the Southern Baptist Convention in the upcoming annual meeting in New Orleans coming up in June. But before we do that, man, some of our folks may not know about uh, your involvement as a pastor in the church you're serving, how you became the pastor of that church. It's a fascinating story, and you and I have talked about it before, and I just see God's providence and how he arranged all that. So would you mind telling us uh, about your family and then about the church, how you've become pastor there, and how long you've been there? Yeah, real quick background. I was raised in a Christian home in another denomination, actually a Pentecostal denomination. But in high school, through my study of Ephesians and 1 Corinthians, uh, I began to take a different doctrinal pathway to uh, the church where I had been raised. Uh, During my college years, I began to uh, attend a Southern Baptist church and found that they were a church on the conservative side of the conservative resurgence in the late 80s, early 90s. And so I received a biblical baptism into a Southern Baptist congregation and uh, really began to pursue a career that I thought, uh, a ministry rather, that I thought was going to be in the music ministry. I did become a music minister at a Southern Baptist church in Macon, Georgia. And after about three years, I came to the church that I now pastor. 
I served as the minister of music, uh, leading all of the music and worship ministries here for about five and a half years. When our pastor resigned to take another congregation, I told our leadership that I was going to go with him. God had really seemed to knit our ministries together, and he remains a dear pastor friend to this day. But four months into that process, the church turned its attention to me. They extended a unanimous invitation for me to become the senior pastor. And this June, that will be 21 years ago. Mm. So I have a total of about 26 and a half years on staff at the same church. My wife, Andrea, and I and our four children live here in Blackshear. But five and a half of those years were minister of music and now nearly 21 years as senior pastor. And uh, how many sermons had you preached before they called you as pastor? I think it was either my sixth or my seventh sermon ever, Sunday sermon, yeah. <laughs> uh, that I preached in view of a call. During the interim period, I was still the minister of music, but they had asked me to line up the pulpit supply because mm. I knew the preachers and, you know, we have a, a Baptist college not too far from us. And they knew that I knew which professors, you know, could uh, ably fill the pulpit. One Saturday night, we had a cancellation and uh, the, the brother, for some reason, could not come that Sunday. So I filled in literally on about 12 hours notice. Mm. And it was during the preaching of my very first Sunday sermon. And I contrast that by, you know, I'd, I'd filled in and done Wednesday night Bible studies. And I'd taught Sunday school when I was in college and in graduate school. But my very first Sunday preaching opportunity, I sensed the call of God uh, to the pastoral ministry. And I really sensed that God was calling me to be the pastor here. Hmm. But I, uh, the only person I told was my wife. I tried to be sensitive to the fact that when you're a staff member feeling that God has called you to pastor that congregation, that that is that is a ripe opportunity uh, for Satan to throw division and controversy hmm. into that. So uh, we just let it play out. And uh, in God's providence, the pulpit committee turned their attention to me. And uh, again, soon we'll have 21 years uh, in uh, pastoral ministry here. <laughs> That's fascinating. I love that story. Yeah. Uh, seven, your seventh sermon. So <laughs> <laughs> the number of completion. That, that's right. That's right. It fits perfectly. Well, all right, Mike, the, um, the obvious question, you were the, a nominee back in 2021 <clears throat> at the Nashville mm-hmm. convention and leading up to that. And especially right before that, uh, convention convened the the night before uh you were slandered you were smeared um i followed that very closely i've 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 recorded a lot of it in writing about things that were done to you that were godless i mean just absolutely godless so the question is brother why in the world would you be willing to put yourself back in that same position I feel the Southern Baptist Convention is on an unsustainable trajectory, and the CPAs of our executive committee literally gave it that label, that moniker, back in February. I continue to see a number of issues that I believe threaten the very uh, fabric of who we are as a convention of churches. And I look around the landscape, and I find that there are not an awful lot of people that are well-positioned in terms of some name recognition, some experience that also have the willingness or the capacity uh, to speak to the issues that we have. When uh, the Nashville convention ended, 
I suspected that I would never have any further involvement in uh, something of this nature. I really put it out of my mind, out of my spirit. In fact, about two months ago, when some leaders that I would say represent a fairly diverse coalition of concerned Southern Baptists, when they began to call me, text me, ask me if we could meet uh, to discuss me potentially running, I told them in no equivocal terms uh, that the answer was no. Frankly, because I didn't think that I could get that prospect past my wife, who is my closest friend and obviously my partner in ministry. And I didn't think that my deacon ministry uh, here, we have a plurality of leadership in our church, and I did not think that they would be supportive. But obviously in the providence and uh, of God, those conversations went in a direction, uh, the counsel that I received and the input went in a direction that was different than what I anticipated. And God used a prayer process over the course of six to seven weeks uh, to really lead me in this, um, uh, to accept this nomination. Well, in one of my leadership meetings, I told them uh, that I felt like the events in and around the Nashville Convention in 21 sort of vaccinated me and inoculated me to some of the personal attacks. I knew when I announced those attacks, those false attacks, would be repeated, and they're going to be repeated and uh, republished over the course of the next several weeks. But the bottom line, uh, Tom, Graham, I know that they're false. My church knows that they're false. People who know me know that they are false. And most importantly, God knows that they're false. So I'm willing to put all of that on the line in part to help lead our convention to never do to other pastors mm. uh, what this convention and much of its leadership has done to me. I said in a related podcast that I dropped last week on my personal ministry podcast that when I talk about these things that are in the past, I'm bringing it up because I could very well be talking about another pastor's future. Mm -hmm. And I do believe I'm talking about the unsustainable future trajectory uh, of our convention of churches. So uh, just through prayer, I really sense the Lord's leadership to get back in the fray and uh, fight for what I believe is the right direction of the SBC. Mm -hmm. Well, that's uh, very kind of you. It's humble of you to be willing to submit yourself to that. And uh, just know we're praying for you. And I'm, I'm grateful that you're willing to do it for all the reasons that you just said. And, and as I was trying to recall this morning before we sat down to talk to you for this interview, some of the things that happened to you. Mm -hmm. I, I, you were named in the Guidepost uh, original report for something that they must have made up out of thin air. Uh, can, can you comment on that? Well, it wouldn't surprise your listeners and viewers to know that I happen to know it's on page 77 of the Guidepost <laughs> Report. And uh, the, the accusation is that I assisted a pastor friend of mine here in the state of Georgia in covering up sexual misconduct that some would even label sexual abuse because supposedly I helped him to draft a statement of uh, uh, of apology to his congregation, covering it up, shifting the blame, etc., Guys, I will just tell you that as pastors, you know, we develop relationships with other congregations, places where we preach and we fellowship on a regular basis. I, I received a contact back in the fall of 2019 from the elders of a Georgia Baptist congregation. They had discovered that their pastor was, in their view, abusing the use of alcohol and was um, using profanity. I advised them that they should terminate him, offer him the most gracious severance package possible, but I found those to be disqualifying uh, behaviors for someone to be the shepherd of, uh, of one of God's congregations. They, they did not want to do that. They wanted to put him on a leave of absence, and they asked me if I could assist them 
in drafting a statement of explanation and apology to their church, which I did. And I will tell you that the statement which was offered to Guidepost in a blanket offer of documents, the pastor takes full responsibility. He does not blame anyone else. He explicitly states that the situation is no one's fault but his own. And two and a half years later, Guidepost prints that that was an example of me being involved in helping to cover up sexual abuse. Mm. They did not give me an opportunity to address uh, that specific accusation. They did not interview anybody on the ground locally. Here I am, Tom, because of the uh, the testimony of how an unnamed witness felt. And I've got legal documentation from Guideposts where they're responding to say, we never accused Pastor Mike Stone of covering up anything. We just reported mm. how an anonymous witness felt. And uh, I won't dive too much down into the weeds mm. except to say I assisted a church with dealing with their pastor's use of profanity and misuse of alcohol. And two and a half years later, with nothing that even remotely resembles an actual investigation, Guidepost says that that's evidence that I've helped a pastor friend cover up sexual abuse, wow. and nothing could be further from the truth. Wow. The, the other aspect of this that is deeply troubling is that Baptist Press, the Executive Committee, and the Sex Abuse Task Force have had access to the documentation that I've just described to you and, and much more than that as well, and they refuse to correct the record. It is, uh, it is an example, and I'll be very blunt here and not shy away from it. It is an example of the politicization and the weaponizing of this sex abuse conversation. Do you think that, you know, this happened to you because you are you, or do you think that there could be dozens of other examples like this, that just uninvestigated claims that are, that have been put out there? Uh, I, I do believe because of some of the people that are involved, that it was specific to me in part because others who have been more connected to and supportive of the guidepost investigation, they were able to get redactions and retractions mm -hmm. with just a simple phone call. I've got document after document after document after document. I've got phone interviews with the relevant uh, people around that situation. And despite all of my documentation, I can't get a retraction. Others who are politically connected uh, to this guidepost investigation, they're able to get their name cleared with just a simple phone call. So I do think that it is specific toward me, but I also think that it is illustrative of how this process can be used to defame and accuse a brother and never give him due process, never correct the record when documentation is actually available. So, I, I, Graham, I think it's both and. Mm. You know, this also highlights one of the grave concerns that Southern Baptists voiced about using guidepost. Uh, when guidepost came out in support of the LGBTQ agenda, say we're proud supporters of this, Southern Baptists began to just rightly protest saying, why in the world are we paying this organization millions of dollars to uh, bring a report to us and registered very clearly that we wanted nothing to do with guideposts. And then the Sex Abuse Task Force, Implementation Task Force that Bart Barber appointed last year turns around and says, we're going to hire Guidepost to uh, set up this website so that we can uh, have access to people who have been, quote, credibly accused of sex abuse or sex abuse cover-up. Well, if, if how Guidepost treated you is an example of what it will take to be credibly accused, then everybody needs to just uh, cut their losses, pull the shades, and uh, 
be willing to be dragged across the street by some anonymous source who says, mm-hmm. I have a complaint. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Guidepost has and, and no Tom, business in SBC life. And, and Tom, I don't want to make uh, this segment overly personal, but but I've got documentation from Guidepost attorneys. I mean, legal advice on their uh, letterhead that says, when I helped this church and their pastor draft an apology about what he had done, profanity and alcohol misuse, they said that I'm responsible for how this unnamed witness felt, and they mm. emphasize that word. I'm wow. responsible for how an unnamed witness felt about what the pastor said, even if he read a statement different than the one I drafted for him to use. Yeah. That is that is asinine that yeah. we would defame and destroy the reputation of pastors on the basis of such flawed and absolutely foolish and unsustainable uh, uh lack of logic. Yeah. Mm. Amen. That's why I'm grateful that you're willing to uh, put yourself out there as a nominee going through what it, what's going to come to you and being castigated the way you will be castigated because these issues are too important. If you're a Southern Baptist or if you're a Southern Baptist pastor particularly, you need to hit replay on what Brother Mike just said about the way he was treated by Guidepost, the, the same organization, this, this implementation task force, even now, though they backed off from it, mm-hmm. even now they seem intent to shove down the throats of Southern Baptist churches to be the leading uh, arbiter of how we're going to determine who is credibly accused. Uh, th- this system is broken. It's flawed. We've already wasted millions of dollars on it, and we haven't helped one person who's been sexually abused not one person yeah and part of the problem is that even if they do back away from guidepost it's only because of the massive pressure that has been applied to them and so the leadership is seeing things incorrectly and they are leading in the wrong way when it comes to dealing with these issues that's right we need new leadership without Mm -hmm. a doubt and so mike uh, we appreciate your willingness to engage in these things and, and Sex abuse is a horrible reality in the world, and and Christians have been involved in it tragically. Churches have been involved in it tragically. Covering up sex abuse is a horrible compounding of both sin and crime, and we ought to renounce that at every point. But the reality is that for all of the time and energy and publicity and preeminence that we've given to the issue, not really much has been done that I can see. What would you say about how Southern Baptists have handled this issue up to this point? Well, I believe one of the biggest problems we have is we think that we're going to handle this from some top-down hierarchical uh, sort of situation. Every single issue, every single incident that has made its way to the executive committee of the SBC has already been in the public sphere. There is a gross misrepresentation of the executive committee of the SBC. I think that most of America, indeed most of Southern Baptists believe that the SBC executive committee covered up cases of sexual abuse. You can read that in headlines and yet every single incident that came to the SBC executive committee was already publicly known. And uh, by definition, you can't cover up something that's already (laughs) in the public sphere. The so-called database, the secret database that EC staff members uh, held, uh, which I knew nothing about, even though I was chairman of the EC at the time, it it was not a database of secret issues. It was an unpublished collection 
of previously published reports. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I think that a lot of Southern Baptists don't really fully understand, the, the strongest action that the Southern Baptist Convention, whether it's through the convention at large or the executive committee itself, the strongest action that can be taken, the so-called death penalty, if you will, is that we disfellowship a church, and that means that we won't seat their messengers at the next annual meetings of the SBC. That in and of itself does not provide any training, any resource, any protection for any child, any teenager, any woman, any member of a vulnerable population in any of our churches. In fact, I dare say that a lot of the members who would attend churches that don't have good and adequate training probably don't even know that their church is in cooperation with the SBC and probably would not even know that their church has been disfellowshipped. I have advocated from the beginning that we need a process that is focused on resourcing, training, and equipping local churches where the abuse actually occurs and where uh, reform would actually be beneficial. Mm. That does not mean that where churches will not um, engage rightly in these issues, that the Southern Baptist Convention should not disfellowship them. Absolutely we should. And we already had the mechanisms and the governing documents in place to do that. And I think that we need to be more focused on resourcing local churches and do away with this top-down hierarchical approach that involves more grandstanding than actual mm. impact on protecting mm. children, women, and other vulnerable populations. That's well put. And uh, I read a deposition that Bart Barber, the current president of the SBC, gave uh, in a related lawsuit to uh, towards some or against some individuals in the SBC. And under oath, he was asked, "Do you know of a single case of the executive committee covering up sex abuse?" And his answer was clear, straightforward, unequivocal: No. I assume that. You would agree with President Barber about that. I, I agree with him on that point, but I would say whether it's any leader in the Southern Baptist Convention to be in a, an elected position and a paid position and allow this convention of churches to be maligned and misrepresented all across social media and traditional media, in part because the glory of Christ and the glorious truth of his life-transforming gospel has been tarnished and diminished. And we have leaders who, because of fear of cancel culture, will not stand up and say that while there are problems that need to be addressed, while there are crimes that need to be investigated, not by Baptist bureaucrats right. from downtown Nashville, Tennessee, but by law enforcement who actually have been charged both by scripture and by our own uh, constitution uh, to actually investigate these matters. Um, we have leaders who should have been and today still should be standing with the, with the loudest microphone and say, we abhor sexual abuse, but we as a convention of churches have not covered up any sexual abuse. And we do not have very many leaders who will say that publicly. Uh, where all of America and all of our convention of churches can hear it. You know, not only have mm. they allowed the convention to be maligned in this way, but many of them have perpetrated it, have mm. given voice to the same malignant accusations. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. And you get the impression, I get the impression that we've got leaders that would rather 
position themselves and speak in such a way that they convince the watching world that they really care about the issue of sex abuse while not doing anything proactively that's going to help the issue that they profess to care about than actually doing something that would help prevent sex abuse and deal with it appropriately where it is discovered and the world not applaud them. And uh, it's yeah. a it's a grievous, grievous error. And Tom, I'll give you a very specific example, and I'll try to give you the Reader's Digest condensed version of it. Right after Dr. Greer named the 10 churches uh, that he felt should be under inquiry, this goes back to February of 2019, mm-hmm. um, we had one of our churches that was actually here <clears throat> in Georgia that had a staff member who had admitted in some civil litigation that he had indeed harmed children in this terrible and, and wicked way. That church, that pastor, was so upset of how they had been treated by the convention, being named publicly by the president of the convention without even being privately contacted and given notice that they were going to be uh, so named, that pastor said that he was going to pull his church out of the Southern Baptist and the Georgia Baptist convention. I got on the phone with our state executive director. And knowing the, the the individuals here that helped to lead our Georgia Baptist Convention of Churches, I encouraged our state executive director to get with our state's general counsel, an attorney who worked for the convention, find a trusted pastor, drive down to that local church, and tell that affected pastor, you cannot and ought not pull out of the Southern Baptist Convention. Instead, you should fire that child molester that you have serving on your staff. And that process worked and the staff member was terminated. Not long after that, really just a week to 10 days after that, I was speaking uh, to a high elected official in our Southern Baptist life, and he said, look, the approach that we've taken, Dr. Greer's approach worked. That child molesting (laughs) music and youth guy was terminated. And I said, (laughs) and I say it bluntly and boldly today, I said, no, your approach was about to take a Southern Baptist church with a pedophile music minister and turn it into an independent Baptist church with a pedophile music minister. And the children and other vulnerable populations in that church were going to be just as much in danger. What I did through relational connectivity, I actually took an approach that did something about it and turned a Southern Baptist church with a pedophile music man into a Southern Baptist church without a pedophile music man. The difference is I didn't go grandstanding about right. it on SBC Twitter so that I could get a lot of attaboys and pats on the back. Mm-hmm. This, the, the approach that I advocate that actually seeks through relationships and resources, resourcing and training will actually be more effective not just in purging our roles of offending churches, which again, I'm in favor of where that's necessary, but it will actually get down to the boots on the ground where the abuse actually occurs and where reform can actually have a real impact Mm. on protecting uh, the vulnerable, caring for the abused, and doing our best to prevent this thing from from happening in the future. Praise God. And it is fully in accord with our Baptist ecclesiology and our understanding of what it means to be Christian from the Mm -hmm. Word of God and how Christians are to handle these kinds of situations. At times, listening to some of the people that are speaking the loudest and trying to virtue signal the the most uh, obviously, it, it seems to me that they have forgotten that we have the Bible, that, that we have a book that actually addresses 
how to handle sins, sins within a church, sins between Christians, Mm -hmm. and what to do with crimes. And so what you did, it didn't cost the convention a dime. You didn't have to go out and find some expert counsel, some organization that could come in and hold a big uh, investigation and then determine what to do. You simply did what the Bible tells Christians to do Mm -hmm. and what is in keeping with our Baptist ecclesiology. Whenever one church gets into difficulty, we have precedent in Baptist history where you call for help. You look to other churches to come and assist you. Mm -hmm. I mean, what a novel idea. Imagine if we'd been doing this the last four years rather than all of the virtue signaling, spending millions of dollars that have virtually done nothing, done nothing to stop the uh, difficulties in this area or to provide remediation in ways that will help us going forward. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I appreciate you mentioned that. Baptist ecclesiology. One of the challenging uh, tributaries to this whole conversation is the increasing notion that our collective resources should be used to pay for settlements and damages in uh, in cases where, where criminal activity, sinful activity of this nature has occurred in an independent local autonomous Baptist congregation. Mm-hmm. That is a that is a legal quagmire. It's a financial quagmire, and there are theological and ecclesiological implications for the suggestion that my church's resources, our sacrificially given offerings and missions dollars should be used to pay for something, Brother Tom, that happened at your church. Right. Or that your church should be somehow legally, financially, morally responsible to pay for something that happened at my congregation. That's more than just an organizational um, argument. That is an ecclesiological argument with, with deep theological implications. Yes, as well as legal and financial implications as well. There are people that want to treat the SBC like it's the Roman Catholic Church, and it simply isn't. And so we've we've now got in the court system language involving uh, lawsuits, uh, the one against uh, uh, the North American Mission Board and Kevin Ezell that has been filed when the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission uh, filed an amicus brief through the Thomas More Foundation. They actually used language that would suggest that all churches are responsible for the action of Mm. any one church. And then Todd Binkert, who was Bart Barber's uh, original appointee to the Implementation Task Force, is a friend of Bart's. He comes out publicly and says, look, we're just going to have to come to terms with the fact that every church is going to have to be responsible (laughs) for what happens. I mean, so this this language, this way of thinking is in the air. Mm. And if it continues, uh, churches that really take the Bible seriously and understand what it means to be a Baptist church, they're not going to participate in an organization like that. Why in the world would they? That goes against what our forefathers died for, what we have mm-hmm. come to believe to be right and good and true about what it means to be a Baptist church. And it's going to just, the, the SBC is going to be decimated Mm. if that continues. One of the greatest blessings of the modern age for Christians is the invention of the audiobook. And Founders is releasing new audiobooks all the time. I'm about to start listening through The Mystery of Christ, which will be my third time through the book. Um, Sam Renahan's classic work on covenant theology. And there are many others, Dear Timothy, um, 
by what standard. Uh, so if you want to, if you listen to audiobooks, if you have long commutes and all those things, uh, go to founders.org. Look at the selection of audiobooks we have. It's, again, it's continually growing and download some of those. Also, I want to remind you of the conference that is coming up next year, January 18th through the 20th, the Founders National Conference. This is The theme is Remember Jesus Christ. Uh, Tom Askell will be there, Conrad Mbewey, Phil Johnson, Travis Allen, and others. So uh, look into that conference. Uh, you missed the early bird pricing, but you can still register for the conference. The space is filling up pretty quickly, and we look forward to seeing you here in Southwest Florida in January. Speaking of theological and legal issues, one of the criticisms that has come against you and thought maybe it'd be a good opportunity for you to speak to it here is uh, the fact of your lawsuit against Russell Moore. Um, some have criticized yeah. you saying, you know, believers should not uh, go to court against one another. And so maybe you could address that. Yeah, well, first of all, let me say that I have never taught and do not believe that 1 Corinthians 6 is an absolute prohibition. I seek to live my life in submission to the sufficiency and the authority of Scripture. Uh, everyone familiar with my ministry knows that that uh, those things are some hallmarks of my teaching ministry and my practice. So if I believe that the Corinthian epistle was uh, an absolute prohibition against this kind of litigation, I would have never even considered that as an option. When I taught it in my church, I stressed that that was uh, a letter to a local congregation where there are agreed upon and clearly established uh, systems of who's going to help adjudicate that offense between those brothers. I also believe that the Corinthian letter has uh, light offenses in mind because Paul argues from the from the lesser to the greater. He says, you're going to judge angels angels one day, uh, and there's nobody in your local congregation who can assist you uh, in resolving these small matters. What I was interested in was the truth. I was very interested in and would still today be very interested in what the legal system would call discovery. Uh, I was very interested in simply getting to the truth. And unfortunately, uh, when people don't want to tell the truth, we do have access to government uh, instrumentation to help us get to the truth. And the primary reason that I dropped the lawsuit was not because I didn't think that it was a good lawsuit, uh, but I just didn't feel that I was going to have the time, the energy, or even the desire to use my life and my resources to help bring about the truth of what was happening in the Southern Baptist Convention. You know, let me read Matthew Henry on 1 Corinthians 6. And again, people might disagree with this, but at least ought to acknowledge that this is a legitimate uh, argument that has been made by respected interpreters of the text. So he's talking about the, the passage on the lawsuits in 1 Corinthians 6. He said, here is at least an intimation that they went to law for trivial matters, things of little value. For the apostle blames them that they did not suffer wrong rather than to go to law which must be understood of matters not very important. In matters of great damage to ourselves or families, we may use lawful means to right ourselves. We're not bound to sit down and suffer the injury tamely without stirring for our own relief. But in matters of small consequence, it is better to put up with the wrong. So he's talking about some situations that are out of your control. I mean, it would have been great if Russ had come to you privately and said, hey, man, you know, here's some concerns I have. But that never happened, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, it, not only did it not happen, but on its face. And, guys, I think this is just an example of the politicization of this entire conversation. 
If you take Russell's press releases, they were supposedly leaked letters. They were not leaked letters. They were backdoor press releases. Mm -hmm. And if you take them on face value, he published to his executive board that he had knowledge of cover-up of this kind of abuse, of people being raped, and of this kind of egregious cover-up system going on at the executive committee of the SBC. And he himself never publicized those accusations for a period of about 16 months, from February of 2020, I believe it was, until mm-hmm. late May uh, on the on the eve of the uh, 2021 annual meeting. And if you take him at his word that it was sort of a leaked letter, then he still hasn't right. stepped forward to right. make those accusations. Mm. And um, uh, and I think Southern Baptists should be deeply, deeply troubled that we have allowed ourselves to be misled by those who should have been able to be trusted. Yeah. And uh, Tennessee, I think, is a mandatory reporting state as well, if I'm not mistaken. But let me just read you Russ's words in this leaked letter. These are Russ Moore's words. I'm trying to say this as clearly as I can to you, brothers and sisters. These are the tactics that have been used to create a culture where, this is his words, countless children have been torn to shreds where women have been raped and then broken down. All right, this is the head at that time of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention admitting that he knows of countless children being torn to shreds. He knows women have been raped and yet, All he does is put it in a letter, and it's leaked 16 months or so later. You wonder why we're in the trouble we're in? Mm -hmm. This is the head of the Ethics Commission of the SBC saying, I know about these things. I've known about them all this time. All I did was write a letter. Pick up the phone and call the police. Mm. Right. Yeah, I would be the first one to say, if I were guilty of those things, someone should call the police. Absolutely. And Tom, I've, I've said to you privately, and I won't, um, I won't indignify this podcast by saying publicly in this forum what I think should happen, particularly to men <laughs> who are proven to have been involved in the abuse of children. But I will mm-hmm. say it involves capital punishment, bloodletting, and I will let your readers fill in the blank for the rest. <laughs> yep. So when I know that I hold that position, and that's not some South Georgia redneck machismo position— I literally hold that position as a matter of jurisprudence. I would be in favor of that kind of capital punishment for for, for those who have been engaged in this kind of behavior. And when you can try to convince others that I'm somehow soft on protecting children, that is prima facie evidence in my own soul that, that you don't have a clue what you're talking about. Amen. That's right. Well, Mike, um, if God were to, see fit that you become the next president of the Southern Baptist Convention. What could Southern Baptists expect? What what would you want to accomplish if God gives you the strength and help to do so? Well, I released a video in my announcement that stated two primary initiatives or focus that I would have. The first is we need a biblical approach to this very issue of sexual abuse. And by biblical, I I tie back into some of the things we've already mentioned in terms of uh, biblical ecclesiology. I mean, we must politely but bluntly reject the idea that we're going to publish a database of those who have been accused of certain crimes. Mm. 
especially when the ones who are helping to uh, in some way objectify the subjective word of being credibly accused are people who I know personally do not have the ability or at least the willingness to conduct an actual investigation. Mm-hmm. We cannot trust corporations who themselves support sexual perversion and by virtue of that would not be in favor or in concert with the overall theological direction of the Southern Baptist Convention. Why we would reach out to agencies and philosophies like that to help us determine what is a credible accusation of sexual abuse or sexual misconduct. We simply cannot do that, not merely because that approach is unsustainable, but Tom, I want to I want to say clearly, I believe that approach is unscriptural. Because the Bible still says that the first to plead his case seems right until his neighbor comes to question him. And we cannot move forward impugning the names of of pastors and ministers and their local churches merely on the basis of accusations. Quite frankly, a Baptist committee of, of preachers and staff members, denominational workers and lay people do not have the expertise that God in his sovereign wisdom gave to God-ordained government. Mm-hmm. On one occasion, sitting at a conference table in downtown Nashville, a high-level committee on which I was serving, I asked the question this way, what is it that that eight or nine members of a Baptist committee in Nashville, Tennessee, think we're going to learn about what did or did not happen in an instant, now several years removed from the actual incident, when police and professional investigators, when forensic science could go into that environment in many cases and determine what happened. In one case, I said, there, there, there's stuff in on that scene that Clorox won't take away. We, we have a government that has the ability to put you under oath. They can threaten you with imprisonment for life or perhaps even worse. They can tap your phone. They can hack your email. They can swear out uh, warrants for your arrest and search and seizure of property. What is it that we think we're going to be able to determine about that situation that people with resources like that could not determine? And uh, I think for that reason, we need to encourage Southern Baptist congregations. When there is an accusation, call the police. Call them immediately. Cooperate with them fully. And if you have a pastor or other church leader or a layperson in your church that will not cooperate fully, remove them from their office and to do your best to see that they are never uh, hired again. Call the police. But what we need to be doing as a Southern Baptist Convention of churches, we need to be resourcing and training local churches because, again, that's where the abuse actually occurs. So that's where the prevention can actually occur. Amen. Well, Mike, you have said uh, publicly in, in your announcement that unsustainable is unacceptable. And yeah. I don't know how any Southern Baptist church or pastor could disagree with that. We have been told that the rate of spending that the executive committee has been involved in the last year is, quote, unsustainable by the CPA hired by the SBC in order to monitor and give financial guidance to us. So to yeah, get Tom, us all, could I interject yeah, right please. here that if the Southern Baptist Convention's executive committee had been guilty of covering up sexual abuse, 
and the proper biblical, ethical, moral, financial consequence of that made us unsustainable? To, to be clear, if we were unsustainable financially because of things we have actually done, I would be the first to raise my hand, make the motion that we shutter the windows, lock the door, sell the building, and divest ourselves of every asset that we have because we would not, in that circumstance, deserve the right to exist as an organization. But it is unacceptable and should be to Southern Baptists that we are spending ourselves into an unsustainable financial trajectory, claiming responsibility for things the Southern Baptist Convention as a convention of churches did not do. That is not to say, I'm explicitly saying that is not to say that terrible sins have occurred. Damage has been done. People have been abused, but they've been abused by individuals serving in local congregations and that's where our focus needs to be, both in terms of, of communication and training and prevention. Amen. Well put. And again, that just accords with what we are as Baptist churches, how we understand the scriptures tell us to operate. Well, Brother Mike, we appreciate your time today and appreciate your willingness to put yourself out there. Uh, you didn't have to do this. You've got a full plate uh, serving the church that you serve and all the other things that God's entrusted to your stewardship. But uh, as a Southern Baptist pastor, I can tell you that I speak for many and saying we're grateful for you. We're praying for you as you go through this process, and we will trust the Lord with the consequences and the outcomes that he sees fit to give to us. Hey man, it's been a privilege to be with you. Yeah, thanks so much. So if you're a Southern Baptist this June, drive to New Orleans. Go fly to New, Orleans. to New Orleans. Get some gumbo and vote for Mike Stone. That's right. Even If you have to drive in on, on Tuesday to vote and that's it, just do that. But come and vote and let's help uh, turn the SBC back on more biblically healthy pathways. Thanks for joining us today on The Sword and the Trial. And uh, thank you, Pastor Mike, for being with us. And we hope you'll join us again next week. Why are we here? What is the most important thing in the world? One of our greatest problems is, is forgetting. We, we forget what God has done for us. We forget what God has taught us. We forget things that we have experienced. If we don't pause, if we don't think deeply, if we aren't reminded again and again and again, we forget. It strikes me pretty significantly in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, remember Jesus Christ. Why in the world would Paul tell a pastor to remember Christ? Well, he's not going to forget that Jesus Christ lived and that Jesus Christ taught, but he's going to forget the significance of Christ. Christ is ultimately our mission. The church is the body of Christ. A church has to focus on the supremacy of Christ because that's why we are the church. Christ is supreme overall. The church's great mission is to preach Christ. We're there to win souls. advance Christ's kingdom. The problem with the world is not that they don't agree with me. 
The problem is that they don't bow the knee to Christ. So that's why we're going to gather to specifically, explicitly focus on the supremacy of Christ, to do our best to remind each other of the centrality of Christ, the beauty of Christ, the glory of Christ. So join us in Fort Myers, Florida, January 18th through 20th, 2024, as we focus on Jesus Christ. I hope to see you there.